0: Welcome to Health and Veritas, I'm Harlan Krumholz. And I'm Howie Foreman.
1: We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Dr. Amy Justice. But first, we'd like to check in on current health news. Harlan, what's on your mind? What what are you thinking about?
0: Well, I I was gonna talk a little bit about electronic health records because, because of our guest today. Let me just take one second to say can you believe it? Another massacre, another gun violence episode. You know, this is health, health care. You know, this is we, we physicians can't be indifferent to this. And and I don't know if you saw the the coach of the of the Golden State Warriors had a, you know, what I thought was an eloquent, you know, thing. Steve Kerr was on Twitter and, and everywhere else. You know, the outrage is growing and the fact that the majority of Americans want something done, just simple background checks and uh anyway i i don't think today's the day we want to talk about this i think we should have a podcast talking about this bring on someone like our Kellerman others leaders and and how how healthcare professionals can play a role and how the society should, we should be moving in ways that can mitigate this and find common ground across society because there are areas where the vast majority of americans agree and yet we can't seem to find find a path forward to implement these areas, even where there is vast agreement among the population. It's just our politicians are still divided. But I I also, just with Amy Justice, one of the stars of the Yale faculty joining us today, you know, a lot has been on my mind about this issue of electronic health records. And just for listeners to say that there is an emerging transition of a large amount of research from traditional ways of collecting it, which was to fill out what we called case report forms. So you would have a patient in front of you in a study, you would ask them specific questions or you would go through their medical record and a human being would then code what they saw, that was their diabetes, was their hypertension, and start filling out forms. Then we would enter those forms into digital formats and, and then try to analyze them. But, but a new way is emerging where we're saying data that's being generated in the everyday operation of healthcare sits ready for us to learn from. That is, with every interaction in healthcare, there's data that's being generated, and that can be the, the substrate, that can be the resource that we use for researching, and it can obviate the need to spend a lot of labor-intensive effort trying to fill out these forms as a means to do research. And, and yet, because the way that electronic health records were developed and the, the diversity of ways that data are archived, organized, and and honestly fragmented within these systems, it's, it's very difficult. It's not simple at all. And our next guest is really a pioneer in this, and, and it'll be a good opportunity to talk to her about some of the challenges, about taking the data from where it sits for clinicians into a, a level that can be used for research, where it's organized and harmonized, and I think she'll give us an appreciation for that challenge. But I just wanted to, to mention that's on my mind because I'm hearing a lot you know, these days about how much we should be using the electronic health record, but uh, we're still in an era where largely people are using these case report forms for research. And, and I think we're at an inflection point and our next guest is part of that. The legacy of her work has really opened up, I think, a lot of eyes about what's possible. So anyway, th- these are just a few things on my mind. I'm really delighted to
1: introduce Dr. Amy Justice. Uh, Professor Amy Justice is a clinical epidemiologist and the CNH Long Professor of Medicine and of Public Health at the Yale School of Medicine. Her research focuses on analyzing electronic medical records data using statistical methods, machine learning, and cross-cohort validation, but this understates vastly her influence and impact, and here's why. Her oldest project is the Veterans Aging Cohort Study, an ongoing longitudinal study of veterans with and without HIV infection ongoing for, I believe, more than 25 years now. Her work has developed healthcare indices that can and are used throughout the world. In short, her work extends well beyond her own scholarship, her own publications. While most investigators can have a large impact looking at changes over brief periods of time. Dr. Justice has invested enormous time, energy, planning and thought in building a living body of ongoing research output that serves a large patient population. She is world renowned. She has presented at the United Nations, the International AIDS Society, the Royal Medical College in London, the White House Congress. She's been multiply honored as well. Um, And I first came to know her, first of all, she's a Yale Medical School graduate, but I first came to meet her when I was a clinical scholar doing my MBA at Penn. She was finishing her PhD there and had already started her auspicious career after training in internal medicine.
0: Amy, I wanted to just take an opportunity in the podcast to take people step by step with how you take existing data. Sometimes people call that real world data data that's being generated in the ongoing operation of the healthcare system how do you take data like that that's not collected by protocol that just becomes part of the medical record because people saw doctors and and sometimes these things we call administrative codes which help the administrators figure out healthcare utilization but don't necessarily track with who these people are because of miscoding and so forth how do you turn that into research grade data and I know it takes a lot of work to do it. Maybe you can help the listeners understand those steps because a lot of people think that must be simple. All you've got all this information in the medical record and you can just turn it into knowledge. But, but the truth is it's really hard and you're one of the world's experts at this. And, and one of the most amazing things about you and you were there so early. Can you help the listeners understand w- what is it that you're doing that's different and what did you have to do to
2: take that information, the medical record, and make it possible to do research? The first step is to get your hands on the data, which even that alone is not a trivial question because you need to understand how it's stored and how it can be accessed and who can access it. Uh, So,
0: Because people are so concerned about privacy.
2: Right, because people are concerned about privacy, but also quite honestly, as a clinician, when you're using the electronic health record, You don't necessarily know how that data is stored you may know it's there somewhere but you don't know okay if i'm looking at a database how do i pull out this this particular data element that i want right so there's first just figuring out where the data sits and how you can access it and of course getting the permissions from the irb for the
0: because it doesn't all sit in the same place right i mean labs can be over here and and Right. radiology's over here, and uh, Exactly, uh, right?
2: and images yeah. sit someplace else, right? Right, exactly. And for many EHRs, outpatient records sit someplace other than hospital records and may or may not talk to each other. So you have to figure out all those pieces and all those connections. Once you have it all assembled, then you need to make sure you're actually seeing what you think you're seeing. Um, and, and by no, the way, how long people,
0: did it take you to do that initial assembly? Because it, people may have their, in their minds, it's like one file cabinet, but it's not. They're actually in
2: different buildings and they oh, may yeah, be written yeah. in different yeah. languages, right? It's it's all- Right, right. So there's those are all those pieces. Plus the people who are running these databases, they they have to answer to the clinical needs first and foremost. As a researcher, you are definitely the second or third person in line. And very often they're understaffed. So you may have to wait quite a period of time for them to get to it and be a bit of a nudge, which I got to be very good at in terms of getting them to give you that data. You know, So asking nicely again and again and again. So before there was a central repository of this data, it would often take a year or more for me to get data out of particular sites. Mm. And then of course I'd need updated data. So it'd be another year of asking for updated data. Having the National Repository was a huge step forward for those reasons. But even once you can get the data in one place, there is a load of cleaning that has to be done.
0: And explain what cleaning means, because some people may may not even be familiar with that word, cleaning.
2: So just as an example, let's take a routine lab like hemoglobin, right? Something that we've all ordered hundreds and hundreds of times, right? Yeah, just our blood count. It's just our blood count. Right. So that can be named hemoglobin, or it could be named heme, or any number of other names, right? And that's a common lab. Usually that has a fairly uniform name. Newer labs can be named lots and lots of different ways.
0: So even even within the VA system, one system, this one lab that's so common can be called a whole bunch of different things when you start looking for it?
2: Right. So a a central lab for HIV research is the CD4 cell count, right? Because that really reflects your immune function. We found 250 different names for CD4 cell counts (laughs) in the VA when we were... How how is that possible?
0: How is it possible that somebody found 250 ways to describe that one test and that the system allowed it?
2: Well, so initially, the way the VA got people to switch over to the electronic record is they called it the decentralized database and allowed a lot of flexibility and tailoring by the individual sites so it was acceptable quite frankly to the doctors who were very resistant to going to a paperless record Hmm. and that led to this kind of diversity of names. Over time that's all been standardized but it's taken really my whole career watching that happen and there still are sometimes a little glitches but nothing like what we first faced when we were trying to do the cleaning.
0: See, because I imagine when people see your papers, they have no idea that you had to, even to make one element like CD4, have to go and figure out because no one even gave you the list of 250 names. You have to figure them out. I
1: looked at a few of your papers, certainly not any big fraction, but you know, knowing that Harlan's here, uh, you know, cardiovascular outcomes were interesting to me as well, and so heart failure in HIV patients I thought was fascinating. Um, can you tell us a little about that correlation or, or another one and just give our listeners a little idea of the depth of knowledge that has been gained from this type of study and how it continues to inform everything about treating HIV as well as how to manage people as they age?
2: Thanks, Howie. So it's it's kind of an interesting story. So... You know, when HIV first happened, I mean, and the the parallels with COVID are also kind of interesting, but anyway, when HIV first happened, right, there was a huge panic. We didn't have any therapies. We were trying to figure out how people got infected. All of that happened, right? Then we finally had a test for whether or not people had HIV, right? And then over the next decade, we developed treatments, right? So one of the modern miracles of medicine is that we now have the cocktail multi-drug treatment for hiv that suppresses the virus very effectively as long as people can take the medication often restores their cd4 counts to near normal cd4 cell counts and gives people a very extended life expectancy it's not you know people talk about a normal life expectancy that's really a little bit of an exaggeration but more along the lines of people having diabetes or other chronic conditions than it was initially. When I first started studying HIV, the median survival after hospitalization was six months. I mean, think about that, six months. Um, Now, you know, depending on the person's age, it could be 20 or 30 years. So it's, it's a totally different story. However, and when we first had those medications available, we all thought, oh, wonderful. People are going to be great but I kind of said as a general internist, you know, there's still a price to be paid for having this infection. We're not clearing the virus, we're suppressing it. Probably there is gonna be some effect as people age with this virus as opposed to without it. And I thought we need to study that. So we need a comparable group of people who are like the folks with HIV, but don't have HIV. And the VA offered a really nice scenario for that, right? Because for instance, hepatitis C co-infection, which is, you know, uh, often a a co-infection with HIV. In veterans without HIV, but who are demographically matched, i.e. by age, sex, uh, race, ethnicity, and site, to folks with HIV, among HIV infected people in the VA, it's about 45% have hepatitis C co-infection. Among the controls, it was 15%. In contrast, in the VA more generally, it's 6% to give you a flavor that we were able to identify people who were behaviorally and demographically very much like the folks with HIV but didn't have HIV so that we could then try to understand how much of what we're seeing is due to HIV how much of it is just aging in a population of folks with socioeconomic issues or minority populations, et cetera, much of which hadn't been very well studied either, right? So so that was a, a very important piece. And we've been able to learn a great deal of things because we have those very close controls to the HIV positives. And we've seen that, yes, there is a price to be paid for chronic infection with HIV. There is this inflammatory low-level inflammation that continues even after we suppress the virus, and that is a key piece in the aging story. Right? We know in general, many of the diseases associated with aging are tied to chronic inflammation, low-level chronic inflammation, and the more of that you have, the more of those conditions you tend to develop, whether it's cardiovascular or cancer or any number of conditions, diabetes. Those are all, in some senses, inflammatory conditions. And in fact, what we've been able to show in a dose response way, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, that cancers, cardiovascular disease, both acute and chronic, uh, and a number of other conditions, you're at greater risk if you have HIV, even if it's suppressed. And by dose response, we've looked at people with unsuppressed virus, people with recently suppressed virus people with long-term suppressed virus and compared them to folks without HIV and shown that there is a dose response. The more virus you've got on board for the longer the period of time, the more the risk. And that's been very important to trying to understand mechanisms of accentuated aging in people with HIV, but also understanding aging more generally, right? This whole study of inflammation is something that's very key to the understanding of aging and aging in a healthy fashion as opposed to not a healthy fashion without HIV as well.
0: Amy, I wanted to just take an opportunity in the podcast to ask you to reflect a little bit on your career and your path. What were the kind of challenges you faced and and what was it that's been key to your success? Well,
2: I... I, I think one of the advantages I had was being different. You know, we talk about how diversity enhances science, and I really do believe that. Uh, you know my my career talk is entitled "Being Left-handed in a right-handed Scientific Universe. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think that the more you come at a question that other people are looking at with a different perspective, sometimes the more you can bring to the table. I was a general internist working with infectious disease docs by and large, right? So I looked at HIV as a chronic disease to begin with. They didn't. They looked at it as something we're trying to cure. And they made many advances by looking at it that way. But I had something else to offer, which was thinking about it as a chronic disease and how do we study a chronic disease in this new population. Um, the VA has many advantages for studying these kinds of questions, right? Uh, I remember when I was getting my PhD back at Wharton, uh, one of the people that was a very senior professor there said, you know, there are lots of databases on people who aren't very interesting to study, but there are very few databases that are really good databases, good quality data on people who are interesting to study. And I thought, you know, the VA's got both. Right? We've got a lot of minority patients, we have people with complex disease, we've got people with socioeconomic disadvantage, we've got people with substance use issues, we've got people with mental health issues, we've got homeless people. It's a great place to study a lot of these questions. And people haven't been doing it nearly as much as they might do it, in part because the VA was only funding certain kinds of research, and people had the impression that they couldn't fund VA research with NIH money. And I and I was told, you'll never get a grant to study this from the NIH because they don't think veterans are interesting. Well, I made the argument that this was an opportunity to understand EHR cohorts and to create them, and eventually NIH bought it. So I, I think that, I, I would say that was my biggest secret to success, that I was willing to kind of think, I, I just inherently think about things differently.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it's good.
1: One of the things that you've both highlighted for me or or reminded me is just like, we have a universal healthcare system for our veterans or at least universally available for our veterans. um, And you're able to do this study. We could use that to do studies on COVID, but you know, I imagine that this is one of the places that we almost have to rely on to do this type of cohort investigation. I know the Framingham study, which is of cardiovascular disease, is not based out of a Veterans Administration hospital. But I wonder, is this the future that we're going to have to rely more and more on the VA for doing this type of work? Or is there a way that this can be done now that... Uh, all hospitals have EHRs, even if they're not, uh, you know, integrated with one another.
2: So, Howie, I think it's an excellent question. Um, one of the issues, of course, is that whenever you try to bring data together from multiple hospitals, so, you know, Yale New Haven Hospital Health System is interested in doing this, as Harlan well knows, but... Uh, And we'd love to be able to know about okay what about the patients who are getting some of their care in New York and some of their care in Boston and some of their care in Connecticut and some of it within Yale New Haven and some of it from other health systems right we'd really love to be able to follow people throughout to have the whole picture for what's happening to them right the problem is linking those databases uh, requires using individual identifiers and there are many many barriers to being able to do that some of which are quite justifiable But which make it very challenging when you're talking about trying to study an epidemic across the country. Uh, When COVID started to happen, I was asked by the VA to be the scientific consultant to a large federal collaboration, trying to bring together databases to study COVID. i was involved in calls the two and three times a day there were a bunch of discussions we talked to the people at um, cms which is the medicare medicaid people we talked to the centers for disease control people we talked with a number of different groups who had federal databases that could in theory be linked the mother may eyes as i like to say were just impossible there was no technologic reason why we couldn't do this it was getting the permissions that weren't possible so in the end Most of the studies were done using VA data alone because we'd already created that data. We already knew how to clean it and we already knew how to analyze it. So we did write, there were a number of COVID papers that came out, but none of those other databases which really would have enhanced the work could be brought into play because there were just too many mother may eyes.
0: When you're um, thinking about what's gonna happen next, you know, with regard to this and you're counseling young researchers about the areas that they should, you know, think about investing. I wonder if you could just share some of your thoughts with, with the people listening about what, where you think those are and what, what you do tell people who are coming to you for, for the next, you know, thinking about the next 10 to 20 years.
2: I like to say embrace complexity. <laughs> uh, you know, when you think about basic science, right, the, the secret to basic science is honing the question down to a very precise, limited focus. Whereas I think the kinds of studies that we do, we really need to be able to be comfortable with complexity and figure out what aspects of complexity are relevant and what aspects can be ignored, Um, but not try to avoid complexity, instead embrace it and try to comprehensively understand it.
1: I was just gonna, I was gonna make a plug right now that you you say embracing complexity, Uh, You know, this is sponsored by the School of Management, and that's their sort of their theme is embracing complexity (laughs) and trying to educate leaders for, um, you know, it it is it is hard when you're early in your career and you're always looking for sort of simple solutions for things to be open minded to the idea that maybe things aren't as simple as we'd like them to be or politics or.
0: And I think it's more than that, which is and Amy, you were able to resist this. I'd like to think I was also able to, but I can't tell you how many times people told me focus. And what they meant by focus was narrow, narrow, narrow to a very simple question and become mm-hmm. like the world's expert in a very small thing as opposed to seeing something more broadly. And I, I don't know, I, you know th- that just never fit my conception of how it could make progress in medicine, where that, that is our on our side of the clinical medicine, applied medicine, trying to improve outcomes. You know, it's never that simple. You have to understand. And I really love the way that you're expressing it, that, that you actually have to embrace that complexity, which means you have to understand a bigger picture. Maybe that's intrinsically part of primary care too. That, you I know, the it perspective is, I think it's you bring.
2: Why I, I think it's why I went into primary care. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a role for both. You know, it's it's like this ridiculous debate about randomized trials versus real world data. It's not one or the other, it's both. We need both. Yeah. We need people who can be somewhat narrow and specialized, and I have a bunch of people who I work with who are very good at that, and they compliment me because they think about the details that I don't think about. So I think it's partly understanding what it is you're good at and what you need to rely on others for.
0: So I I have well, I do want to leave with one thing, which is we, we both uh, have great admiration for uh, an appreciation for Alvin Feinstein as a sort of a, you know, one of the giants of of Yale's uh, scientific history who actually paved the way for, I think, legitimizing the rigor with which you could apply to clinical science. When I think about you, I not only think of your creativity and impact, but I think of the rigor of your science, and I I think that probably Alvin, as you were, you know, he, he was one of your mentors and one of mine. So I just wondered if you wanted to reflect just for a moment about what what Alvin Feinstein meant to you just as a way for us to pay tribute to him uh, together on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Harlan. Uh, Alvin was my first mentor. When I started medical school, I said I wanted to be a clinical leader. And then I had a patient who was my age, a woman who had uh, cryptococcal meningitis and and AIDS. And she said to me, I know I'm going to die with this thing, but can you tell me how, how long I've got? I remembered I'd had Alvin for prognostic staging and he'd worked on cancer. I went to see him cold and said, would you help me with this? And he said, sure, who's gonna be the AIDS expert? And I said, oh, I will be, (laughs) you know, as a medical student. And Alvin said, great, let's do it. And he spent two years with me, meeting with me every week for an hour, teaching me chart review, teaching me epidemiology and methods. And I realized, hey, I'm better at this than at clinical medicine. I think this is what I wanna do. So he's responsible for me being in research altogether. I was going to be a clinician, which I was very excited about, but I think I'm better as a clinical investigator.
0: Hmm. You're actually good at a lot of things, but that is amazing. And and he did invest tremendously in students, everything from teaching clinical examination to teaching people how to do research. And anyway, it's nice for us to have the memory together of of his contributions. So
2: well, Can I just say one other thing? Yeah. So... Um, I was running the clinical, one of the clinical scholar meetings, you know, not the Robert Johns, clinical, the, um, you know, the fellowship afterwards meeting at the year that Alvin died. And I, at the end of the meeting, I said, uh, which was 2001,
0: I think, right? Yes.
2: And at the end of the meeting, I, I said, you know, I'd like to recognize Alvin Feinstein and the role he's played in our lives. And I said, would everyone for whom Alvin was a direct mentor stand up? And, you know, a bunch of people stood up in the room. And then I said, okay, would everyone who has been mentored by someone who Alvin mentored, please stand up? And, of course, you know, twice as many or three times as many people stood up. And then I said, would anyone who's ever used the word comorbidity please stand up? And, of course, everybody in the room stood up because Alvin coined that term.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I was at Wharton, and that's when I first met him at the uh, annual meeting, and uh, he was a larger-than-life figure there. I got to know him a little bit during my first five years as on the faculty here. Uh, and as you say, there are so many people, uh, people still much younger than me, who's in, whose lives have been enormously impacted by him. So it's, uh, it is an honor to, to talk about him in this way.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Amy. So thank you so much for taking the time with us. It's such a great pleasure. And and I said, it. it's it just, uh, it is a chance when you were coming on to just review your enormous body of work and, and the impact it's had. And it's 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 great to be a colleague of yours at Yale.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Your contributions are gonna go on for, for decades. I mean, that's what is so amazing about this. Um, so thank you for everything that you do.
2: Oh, thank you, Howie. Thank you, Harlan. I appreciate the opportunity. And, your very kind words.
0: <laughs> uh, well, well deserved. That was great, Howie. So let's transition now. What's on your mind this week?
2: You know this is
1: graduation week at Yale. Um, it's been a just a fantastic time. It's always so inspiring to me, uh, you know, as a teacher and as somebody who's been part of this campus for a while. and I just want to talk about two very special graduates, two people, who are particularly important to me, and I say this with incredible respect to all the other students I have because I have a great privilege to teach all of them. Um, But these two come to mind. Hill Moss uh, first, uh, she came to Yale five years ago to pursue a management degree after six years at a firm that provided support and consultation for cultural organizations. This is a, a pretty common background for a student that comes to our School of Management. Um, So no big surprise here, but shortly after arriving at the age of 28, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and I first became aware of her at that time. Uh, she took some time for diagnosis, treatment, and then a return to finish her first year in her MBA program, during which time she decided to apply to our MPH program, our public health program, which is where I really came to know her story and her passion, uh, and, and for her reasons for why she wanted to pivot to the health sector. And to make a long story short, this, this week she graduated with both the MBA and the MPH degree, is now the founder and CEO of a company that seeks to support cancer survivors an often overlooked population with special needs, challenges, and opportunities. Uh, she helped co-lead our healthcare conference, was a leader in so many other activities, and quite frankly brought joy, compassion, and her personal experiences into curricular, co-curricular, and extracurricular activities. We are so, so much better off for having her among our graduates. And then in the other, in the other sphere is Arya Singh, who... I first met when she was a sophomore undergraduate taking my class in the fall of 2019, right before the pandemic began. She scored the highest raw score in a class of nearly 100 students, but she didn't stand out just for her scholastic excellence, but also because she was wheelchair bound, a motorized wheelchair. And I learned a lot about the challenges of access on even our ADA compliant campus because after the first week of sitting in the back of the lecture hall and being reminded that i had to speak more loudly because she was so far back there i learned that it was she was sitting back there because she couldn't figure out how to get to the front of the classroom we had this sort of hidden elevator And she eventually found the hidden elevator and joined me in the front of the room where I learned more about her. The fact that she was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy at a time when it was, quite frankly, a fatal childhood illness and how she enrolled in a clinical trial of new therapies and eventually being among the first cohorts of patients to receive a new therapy that has prevented the further uh, advancement of the disease, offering her an opportunity for a more fulfilling and full life. And along the way, I learned about her children's book, that she wrote about clinical trials, her interest in orphan drugs, and I was able to hire her as my course and technology assistant for the pandemic years 2020 and 2021. And it's not an exaggeration to say that she absolutely got me through the pandemic semester and then the pivot back to in-person teaching. This week, she was the student class day speaker and I encourage everyone to listen to her talk. We'll link it. um, in the narrative for the podcast, and the next day she graduated Yale College. And after some healthcare consulting this summer, she's gonna come back to Yale to finish her MPH degree, again, helping me this time as a formal teaching fellow. We all face challenges in our lives. These two women have turned those challenges into opportunities, have made the world a much better place for those around them, including me. I am so grateful for their efforts, for their friendship now, Um, and it just reminds me why teaching is such a uh, great part of my life and and what makes me enjoy uh, being at Yale so much
0: more. Yeah, we're, I really appreciate that you shared those stories, Howie, and, and we're indeed so lucky, you know, these two individuals are, are extraordinary, but, no but, but, and so many of the people that we encounter, so many of the students that we have the privilege of meeting are are just amazing in what, they've, what they do, how they think, what they aspire to try to make happen, and, and in many cases, obstacles That they've overcome and uh really appreciate you sharing with uh, that with us today and and for us to be able to note that you know an academic calendar we've just passed graduation and it's such a a wonderful time of year to to you know uh, see people through their growth and now ready for the next chapters of their lives so thanks so much for sharing that for sure thank you you've been listening to health and veritas with harlan krumholz and howie foreman so how did we
1: do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter.
0: I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E, that's Yale. H-M-K-Y-A-L.
1: And I'm at the Howie, that's at the Howie. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the EMBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs. By the way, how did you become the Howie? Oh, that's a great story, Harlan. We'll save it
0: for for next time. Yeah,
1: let's save it. I got to tell that story one day. All
0: right, I got to hear that. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, the Howie. (laughs) Thanks, Harlan. Talk to you soon.